we are doing this, this uh, discussion out of Isaiah chapter 40, where the, Isaiah writes to the people who would be in the Babylonian captivity, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Wait upon the Lord means to look to Him with expectation and hope. They, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and they shall not faint. And the issue is that what do we do to show that we're waiting upon the Lord? What do we do to put ourselves in the path of blessing where Christ walks so that we can call out, Lord, have mercy upon me? And I, I'm suggesting to you, as we pray and as we seek the Lord, there are uh, four things I want to bring before you that I would call habits of grace. And those things are, thank you very much, you're very kind. So wait a minute, something just happened here. No, I just said something. The four things are, number one, thank you, uh, the Word of God, i got to get over here. N number two, Christian fellowship, which I covered last week. Here they are. If I don't, Christian fellowship, which I covered last week. Having friends, today, the issue of stewardship. Today, next week, the issue of stewardship, which is a mindset. And then lastly would be the rhythm of the Holy Spirit. So my thesis this morning is this. Is that we're called to live as called out people before the Lord if we've trusted in Christ. And as called out people, we are stewards. And a steward or stewardship is someone, a steward is someone who manages entrusted resources. You manage entrusted resources. Our gifts, our calling, who we are, our location, where we live, are all gifts from the Lord given to us to be used to His glory. Because we know that the chief end of man is truly to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So I'm going to be in the book of 2 Corinthians. And, and the church at Corinth was a mess, to be bluntly honest. People say, oh, wouldn't it be great to be in the early church? Well, yeah, church at Thessalonica, absolutely. Church of Galatia, don't think so. Corinth, don't think so, that type of thing. Um, for example... In church at Corinth, they, they lined up behind superstar pastors or leaders. One guy said, well, I follow Peter. Oh, I follow Paulus. I follow Paul. And, and they were lined up behind these people, and Paul, Paul just thunders forth, there is no foundation laid other than Jesus Christ. Another issue in the church at Corinth is that, is that they, were, they, they were lax in their morals. There was, a, there was a situation in the church at Corinth where a man was... I don't want to embarrass people, but he was in an immoral relationship with, we believe, his stepmama. And Paul says, even the pagans don't do that kind of thing, but you consider it of no account, no big deal. And so they corrected it, and they, we think, brought him back. But when he came back in repentance, the church folded their arms and said, we can't receive you. And Paul says, come, give me a break. Either you're undercorrecting or you're going way beyond where you should be. They went to the Lord's table. And at that, in those days, the Lord's Supper also was served, we think, with, with a meal. And Paul says, you guys go to the Lord's table, and you get there early, and you become drunk. He says, you're drinking damnation upon yourself. They were misusing spiritual gifts. I mean, it was, the church was 
really a mess. They were suing each other over trivial things. And then Paul writes these letters to correct them and to encourage them to walk in the way of Christ. And so we come to this passage in 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul hammers out some truths that, that teach them to, to live for the Lord. He says, for example, he says, remember the Old Testament, there was a glory with the Old Testament covenant. There was, a, there was a glory in that, but they were anticipating the coming of Christ. Christ now is the one who is full of glory, and we reflect Jesus in the way we live. He says, so it is, it is surpassing glory that you walk under. He says also, remember this, in 2 Corinthians 3, that the Holy Spirit is transforming you. The Holy Spirit is changing you. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. We're being changed. The Holy Spirit is changing you. He, he says, you, you, you're people who understand that even though life is brief and even though your body is wearing down, a glory awaits you called heaven. Listen to chapter 4, verse 16. So he says, we don't lose heart. Though our outward nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For for this light or this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, he says I'm going to be bluntly honest, Paul says, we get old and we die. Our bodies wear out, but the inner man is renewed. Therefore, we don't look at the things that are seen because the things that are seen are passing, but the things that are not seen are eternal. And that, that, is, that is a hard message to grasp. Let's be honest. It's a hard message to grasp, especially if you're young. When I think of all the young people in, in the worship center right now, it's just a hard thing to get hold of. But, but that's what the Scripture says. And as Paul says, and as you think about that, and as you realize the eternity that awaits, remember the hope of heaven, chapter 5, verse 6. He talks about the glory that awaits. He says, we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Therefore, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body here and to be with the Lord in heaven so whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And then he says this. Four, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or whether evil. I'll say it again, but let me say it now. Please don't understand. If you have trusted in the work of Christ on the cross for your sin as your substitute, he says in chapter 21, excuse me, verse 21, the same chapter, he says, for our sake he made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you have trusted in Christ, I trusted in Christ when I was 19 years old. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin in my place. If you've trusted in Christ, you will never, ever, 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 ever 
be judged for your sin. It's done. It's accomplished. But, child of God, and I'm preaching to children of God this morning, people who trust in Jesus, you will give an account for faithful living before the Lord. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus says several times, our desire is to be, to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, God has placed every person here who names the name of Jesus in businesses and neighborhoods and relationships and zip codes where you can speak the name of Jesus to those around you and live as an example. There are four Gospels, but the fifth Gospel is the one that most people read more than anything else. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. You. And your contemporaries read the Gospel of you all the time. So so a, a steward, once again, is a manager of resources entrusted to him or her. We're stewards of the grace of God. First Peter says the manifold grace of God. So, so never judge for your sin, but give an account. So this, this whole issue of, 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 of uh, t- to me, when I get this, when I really get this in my heart, it gives life sobriety and depth of meaning. See, not only, see, every person here, even if you curse the name of Christ, every person here is made in the image of God. Therefore, every person here uh, can, can be kind and gracious, and they can sometimes do beautiful artworks and write, write beautiful music or poetry or whatever because you're made in the image of God. It's called common grace. Every person here has been given those gifts. A child of God has been given those gifts, made in the image of God, but also when you receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives you a gift or gifts to be used for the common good to push the gospel around the world to the glory of the name of Jesus. Therefore, when I get hold of the fact that, that I am a child of God, I'm made in His image, a child of God, I've been gifted, I've been placed in locations, it, it gives life sobriety. When I read this verse and I say, I will give an account, you will give an account at the judgment seat of Christ for the way you've lived your life, for the way you've represented Christ. Now, you're in heaven by the blood of the Lord, but we're responsible. So it, it, it takes life out of the humdrum, tedium, me-only atmosphere and places it in a place of, 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 of deep sobriety. That's the only word I can think of. I think of when it talks about office holders, deacons and elders in First Timothy, it says they must be men who are grave or sober. And I think it means that they understand these issues and it's weighty on their hearts. So, so I've been reading about uh, the other worldview The other worldview, this kind of the secularist worldview says that not made in the image of God, impersonal, plus time, plus chance. So all of life is just kind of a will of the wisp, no big deal. You live, you die. When you die, it's like blowing a candle out. That's all there is. You're buried and and that's it. And so there's no rhyme to reason. There's no foundational truth. So I've been reading about this issue of what people call existential dread. Uh, existential dread means, uh, some people call it chronic existential dread, 
which means that you feel the walls are closing in on you and there's no hope. I read a journal entry or an article out of a journal by a psychologist who deals with, with teenagers who are dealing with what he calls existential depression. They're depressed in the present moment in their experience. He says they're depressed. And he says he works really with gifted teenagers. He, they're, they're depressed because of ultimate concerns, i.e. death. They have no answer for death. He says freedom. He says the freedom that depresses them is the belief that they're free moral agents, but there's no foundational truths upon which to live or, or build your life. It's all, it's all up in the air. He says they're depressed because of isolation. They feel unworthy and filled with shame and meaningless. And I said, yeah, I, I get it. And he says, I deal with gifted children. Then he says this. I thought it was very interesting. He says, quote, these children, teenagers, are able to see that the world is falling short of how it might be. Their inconsistencies, arbitrariness, absurdities in society, and in the behaviors of those around them. We cannot do much about the finiteness of our existence. However, we can help them feel understood and not so alone, close quote. And I, I read that and thought, this, this guy is a very insightful, gracious person. But he talks about three things you can do to help people who are in what he calls young people involved in existential depression. He says, number one, identify with them. He says, we've all been there. And in fact, there was a leading existentialist by the name of Jean-Paul Sartre, and Jean-Paul Sartre it's one of the most famous statements. He died about 1964. He says, man is useless passion. It is meaningless that we live and meaningless that we die, close quote. Never work for the Hallmark Channel, okay? Uh, man is useless passion. There, there's no reason to live. There's nothing to live for. And so he says, you, you, you've got to say, I've been there and I've grappled with that. He says, secondly, the second thing you do, you know, three things he mentions. He says, remember the importance of touch. And say to these young people, he says, you may not feel like you need to be hugged, but I need to be hugged. Can I hug you? He says, if they say no, say, well, just reach out and tap them on the shoulder. If they don't do that, give them a high five. But just have some touch with them. I thought, okay, that, that, that's okay. And he says, and thirdly, he says, tell them to read about people who have dealt with this depression, but they've gone on and made a difference. And he gives a poem that he likes to give to young people by a guy named Langston Hughes, who was part of the Harlem Renaissance. He was born in uh, 1902. So anyway, Langston Hughes says this. This is, a, this is the poem he gives to people. And this is a psychologist. He says, hold, hold fast to dreams, for if dreams die, life is a broken-winged bird that cannot fly. Hold fast to dreams, for if dreams go, life is a barren field covered with snow. And I, I, I read that. And, and I want to weep. I want to weep. You're your parent. You have a, a child that maybe you've talked, talked about depression or, or suicide or whatever. And you take them to a, a, a very well-meaning, gracious man. And his three points of entry in their life is, well, been there, done that. Can I have a hug? Read this poem. And I think, we have the gospel of Jesus that says you are significant because you're made in the image of God and because God has saved you for his purposes and you're to be a steward of what God has given you. You have dignity. And I, to me, this just, it just fills life with, with dignity. Listen, listen, you're a steward. You're saved by the blood of Christ. And he's called you to manage resources that he's given to you. 
So just some quick points. Number one, I'll say it again. You're never judged for your sin. Thank God. But you will give an account for being a faithful steward of the grace of Christ. Again, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We would never say this out loud, but I think there's, I think we live in a culture of self-congratulatory meism. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And I think that's deadly. I think it's deadly. We are the beneficiaries of grace. So let me give you a brief historical lesson. John Quincy Adams, sixth president of the United States. His dad was the second president, John Adams. His mama was Abigail Adams, who was probably the best Adams of them all. She was incredible. John Quincy Adams, I'll give you just a real brief background. Age 11, his dad goes to Europe, represented the colonial cause, and he goes to the Netherlands and France, and he tries to get aids from those governments to help fight off the British and to get independence. And while he's there, John Adams, John Quincy Adams at age 11 is put into schools and he learns to speak French fluently. He learns Greek and he learns Latin. He's a very bright young man. He goes to some of the best schools in France and the Netherlands. When he's a few years later, the uh, major diplomat in St. Petersburg in the court of the Tsar of Russia needed a secretary. And John Adams says, you know, my son writes and speaks French fluently. And that's the official language of the Tsarist court. Why don't you let him be your secretary? So he goes to St. Petersburg for two years as a secretary, the major diplomat, and sees the Tsarist court. It's just amazing. He comes back to England. He's in England right after the war is fought or settled at Yorktown as his dad is writing the peace agreement. And he's there in the court of King George III. And he sees all this stuff. He comes back and he enters Harvard after doing all this stuff at the age of 16. I didn't do any of that. Maybe you did, but I didn't. He goes to Harvard, and he graduates number two in his class. I don't know who beat him out. I'd hate to meet that person. David McCullough, who wrote a, the biography of John Adams, said that John Quincy Adams probably is the most brilliant man that ever sat in the executive office of the United States of America. Well, he's at Harvard. He's done everything. Abigail Adams is away from her son, but she's a no, take no prisoners mama. And her sister writes her letter and she says, you know, uh, it's good to have John Quincy back, but quite frankly, he's an arrogant twit. He's driving us all crazy because he's had all this experience and so forth and so on. And she writes a letter, and I just put part of the letter in here because I just think, thanks be to God for mamas who tell truth to adult boys. She says this, let me just read, she says, I want you to reflect that you have had greater opportunities of seeing the world and obtaining knowledge of mankind than any of your contemporaries. That you have never wanted a book, but it has been supplied to you. That your whole time has been spent in the company of men of literature and science. Then she says this. It's a great line. How unpardonable it would be. Would it, excuse me, how impartable would it have been in you to have turned out a blockhead? That's not a positive term. I read that and I thought, God forgive us for strutting. I thought about people in our church who are gifted in the area of finance and making money. I'm, I'm amazed. I, I, I have no, 
idea about entrepreneurial skills. But there are people here who know how to put things and strategically think and market and do this and do that, and they make money. And I'm so glad for them. It's a gift. But I would, remind, I would ask you to go to Venezuela or Afghanistan and do the same thing with your business portfolio. Wouldn't work. I think of board-certified physicians in our church who do a great work and who labor hard and who, who are esteemed as they should be. And I, I think, you know, thanks be to God for these people. Thanks be to God for their work. And then I, then I think, well, but, but maybe if they went to Afghanistan or North Korea or Libya, mm, not the same thing. I think of pastors who have the privilege of preaching and working in a church where there's religious liberties and working with the staff and elders that are just... I think, very committed and gracious. And I thought about our dear brothers and sisters in mainland China, who today you're told when to preach, what to preach, and what to say. And if you don't do that, you may go to prison. So we strut and say, well, man, we're so gifted, or we're so brave, or we're so, yeah. God has blessed us. There is a talk show host that uh, some of you have listened to through the years and have, I don't listen to him that much, but he has a byline that says, talent on loan from God. And he says it in a haughty fashion. And, but let me tell you something. Theologically, that is absolutely correct. Our talent is a gift from God. Our location, our bank accounts, our marriages, our homes. We are stewards of the grace of God. The second thing I would say in this passage is, is just this, this. Do not silence the groaning process. And by, by that I mean that, that, that Paul says twice in this passage, he says in verse 2, for in this tent we groan. In this body we groan. We, we just groan. Groaning means that you say, sometimes you say, my body is falling apart and it hurts. I want a resurrection body. Sometimes the groaning is, the besetting issue of a certain sin has once again bit me. God, release me. But we groan. He says, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, the tent of this body, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed with a basically imperishable body. And I would say, church, do not leave off the groaning process. The problem with us today is that because of comfort and because of the explosion of trivial information, it is easy to negate through medication or whatever the groaning process that happens when your body is hurting or the negate the groaning process of the besetting issues of sin with massive entertainment. There's a book written in 1985. I read it, read it two times, by a guy named Neil Postman, professor of communications at New York University, entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death, 1985. And he says, because of the evening news, he called them talking hairdos, not heads, talking hairdos, we're not dealing with any substantive issue, he says, on the evening news. It's just boom, 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 boom. He says, and because of the TVs in every home, we go from channel to channel to channel, entertainment to entertainment, and we have no time to really think. And this is this, 1985. 
Those are the dark ages when it comes to media. I mean, CBS, ABC, NBC, boom. That's it. What would he say today? He says, we are amusing ourselves to death. I heard a lectureship recently about a man who's, uh, he gave the example, he says, John D. Rockefeller. By the way, John D. Rockefeller, I think he died in 1938. He was the first billionaire in America, maybe in today's money, the most wealthy man in the history of the world. He cornered the oil market in America and Europe, John D. Rockefeller. What you don't know about John D. Rockefeller is he gave hundreds of millions of dollars to gospel causes. He taught the same men's Bible study for 38 years in the same church every Sunday in a Baptist church in, in New York. Amazing, amazing person. Anyway, the man was talking about, he said, you know, John D. Rockefeller was the first true billionaire in America. He said, I'm going to ask you a question at the end of this illustration. I'm going to ask you who would want to change places with John D. Rockefeller in 2016. That's when the lecture was, as compared to 1910, 1912. He said, for example, he said, John D. Rockefeller, in his day, even with his billions of dollars in today's money, if you're sick, there's no antibiotics. You just tough it out. He said, hygiene was basically minimal. Very, 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 very few homes in 19 and 10 had indoor plumbing. He said, no AC or heat to speak of. He said, if it's hot in the summer, you're just hot. If it's cold in the winter, you're just kind of cold all the time. He said, food, food was there, but it was all seasonal. Uh, just an aside, I remember my grandmama looking at me when I was 13 or 14. And she said, I can't believe we can eat strawberries three months out of the year now. Because in her day, you had strawberries eight weeks out of the year. It was a seasonal fruit. Now we have berries and fruit anytime at any place. He said transportation was difficult. Travel was hard. In fact, in 1900, I read this the other day, in 1900, the average person didn't travel more than 11 miles from their front door. Think about that. 1910, 1912, medicine was tough and dentistry was horrible. I mean, it just hurt. It just hurt. I mean, you just got old and it just hurt. And I was just thinking to the side that in, in the World War I, 18 million people were killed. But there's something called the Spanish flu that happened from 1918 to 1921. 50 million people worldwide killed. 760,000 Americans dead. 130 men, 130,000 men died in World War I. 760,000 people died of the Spanish flu. Just, this stuff is amazing to me. He says, after he gives that lecture, he says, he says, I give this lecture all the time. I'll say, now show me your hand if you want to change trade places with John D. Rockefeller and go back to 1910. He said, I've never had one hand raised ever. We're blessed with conveniences. But what I'm saying is conveniences can deaden the voice of groaning. So I say groan. Um, this week, we had the 75th anniversary of Auschwitz, the liberation of Auschwitz, the death camp by Soviet troops. This man was a little boy 75 years ago. Auschwitz, 1.1 million people killed, 1 million of them Jews. Grown. Man's inhumanity to man, this guy. He was one of the lead doctors in Auschwitz, a guy named Joseph Mengele. 
a devil, devil PhD, really a, a PhD in anthropology and an MD, a medical doctor, highly trained. He would use his skills to, especially to experimentation on twins. He was a butcher. He evaded capture and died in 1964 in Argentina. The story about Lingala is that he would go about his business as he put people to death through experimentation as he hummed scores from Mozart and Beethoven. This week, we've all picked up the paper every day and we've seen about the coronavirus. China being shut down. See, the virus is because we live in a broken world. Auschwitz, we live in a broken world. A good world gone bad. Last Saturday afternoon, I received a text from someone that said, uh, just, on, just on the news, Kobe Bryant, we think, has been in a helicopter crash. And I immediately turned on the news and watched. And last Saturday, Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter and several other people, all involved in youth basketball, were killed in a helicopter crash outside of Los Angeles. And I've had, I don't want to overstate this, I think I've had 15 to 20 conversations this week with people who brought this up. And without exception, I think without exception, this has been the comment. I was not prepared to be so emotionally impacted by the death of Kobe Bryant as I was. He was an incredibly gifted athlete, a great ambassador for the game of basketball, um, a man who, as far as I know, the last 20 years of his life especially, has been a faithful husband and father to four girls, um, really loved. And, and as I, I've, I've tried to process that, and people said, I wasn't prepared for Kobe's death to impact me the way it did. I've heard that. I think for two reasons. Number one, it's just a sorrowful thing. See, when you hear about a disaster, a tsunami, or something, and it's just a group of people, it hits you. But when you see names and faces, it just hits you. And so this is a 13-year-old girl and her contemporaries that died this is a 41-year-old man who died at the height of his ability to influence others. And it's just a sorrow. Let me tell you the second thing I thought about. And that is, I don't think we're ready to prepare and think about the fact that life is brief. And so as one sportscaster said, I can't believe he's dead. I thought Kobe was immortal, bulletproof. I mean, he's the man. We're not prepared, brothers and sisters, to think about life is brief, and it, it happens, and death happens to the young and the handsome and the beautiful and the talented and the old and the broken down. It happens. And so when I read the Bible, it is, it is a preparation. And so I say to you, do not leave off the groaning process Pick up the newspaper or, or pray for people. I heard a terrible story this morning about a, a young man who died at the Citadel. You, you, you hear this and your heart just breaks a thousand times over. Groan. Don't turn on ESPN and try to block it out. Don't turn on, uh, you know, Netflix and, and binge on some type of show. I mean, there's nothing wrong with watching TV, but I mean, don't deaden the voice of groaning because this is what happens. When, when we understand that we're called to account and we see a broken world, it causes us to pan for heaven and to live for his glory. I believe that. I believe that. 
So thirdly, he says, he says, be of good courage. Twice Paul says here, be of good courage in this passage. He says, verse 6, he says, therefore, we are always of good courage. That means we live cheerfully. You think about it. Paul has just said, your body's breaking down, life is short. Then he says, but we live cheerfully. We live of good courage. For while we know we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. Therefore, we walk by faith and not by sight. We know that a day is coming. It's called a glorious day when we go to heaven. We have good courage. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage. We live with a cheerful countenance. We'd rather be away from the body, this broken body, and to be at home with the Lord, but we wait for that day. If I live as a steward, there's a statement here from the larger catechism, question 90, what shall be done to the righteous of the day of judgment? This, let me read the first three sentences. And they shall be received into heaven where they shall be fully and forever freed from all sin. Praise God. You ever get tired of sin? You ever get tired of saying crummy attitudes at times? I do. Free from sin and, and, and misery, and they're filled with inconceivable joys. And they're, they're made perfectly holy and happy in body and soul, resurrection bodies. In the company of the innumerable saints and holy angels, but especially in the immediate vision and fruition of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Boom! So when I get hold of that, I mean, get hold of that. Yeah. So, stewards, managers of resources entrusted to them, we're all stewards. If you're married, your marriage is a stewardship. If you have kids, your kids, stewardship. Grandkids. Your friendships are a stewardship. Your job, your location. See, the, the Lord in his tender mercies has placed us all at zip codes and street addresses and nations and college campuses and interest groups where we are called to represent Jesus to those around us. That's just who we are. This passage says we are ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Your job is your calling. Your neighborhood is your calling. There was an old hymn by a guy named Charles Wesley, and it was made famous by a, in fact, by painting. The painting became famous because it hung in the office of President George W. Bush. It was entitled, A Charge to Keep. It's based on a hymn by a man named Charles Wesley, who wrote a couple thousand hymns. <laughs> but this is how it goes in part. He says, to serve the present age, my calling to fulfill, oh, may it all my powers engage to do my master's will. Arm me with jealous care as in thy sight to live, and oh, thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account 
to give. That's good stuff. And oh, thy servant, Lord, prepare a strict account to give. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank you that in trying to enthuse and straighten out some of the stuff at the church at Corinth, you um, gave us First and Second Corinthians through the Apostle Paul. And we thank you for the glory of the new covenant in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. We thank you that if we want to see the reality of God, we look in the face of Jesus. We thank you that the scripture says here that the, the outward man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed, that the body is going to wear down, but the inner man is going to be renewed. Uh, thank you that Paul calls these slight and momentary troubles compared to an, an eternal weight of glory. And I thank you that he says this. He says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Lord, every one of us who name the name of Christ. Let us be faithful. Oh, let us be faithful. Thank you that you've placed us at key positions all over this city, and some places all over the world, to just speak the name of Christ, to live for him. I pray the gospel would be read as we walk in the light of who Jesus is. Lord, make us faithful. Oh, God, energize us afresh in Jesus' name. Amen.